Bloomberg Intelligence is brought to you by CME Group, the world's leading derivatives marketplace, offering the widest range of global benchmark products across all major asset classes. CME Group, where risk meets opportunity. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, let's get returned to uh, Galit Altstein. She is the Israeli economy and a government reporter for Bloomberg News. She joins us from Tel Aviv. And Galit, I think the message there has been pretty consistent, uh, a message of support by the U.S., the U.S. people for uh, the people of Israel. What's the feeling in Israel these days as to maybe next steps yeah so so first of all just on, on on the feeling and on the sentiment here in israel so 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 i think president biden's support is very well noted also in the public um it is being talked about it is being discussed and people are i, I would actually say that generally speaking the public here um is, is is very much moved by um by his speech last week and also by the fact that he has taken the time to speak to israelis in, in various um um press conferences and media briefings, um, I think roughly three times um, today. Apart from that, um, we're hearing that um, Israel, and, and we have an official um, prime minister spokesperson um, who says this um, to Bloomberg today on the record, they're saying that um, even after um, everything that happened in the hospital yesterday, the Gaza bomb explosion in the hospital, that Israel um, says it was not involved in in any way, um, they they still t um, want to move forward with the original plan, so to say, and um, dismantle Hamas in Gaza. And um, since this cannot be accomplished, um, according to you know any expert you would speak to, without some sort of ground maneuver, then um, assumption is that this is still um, coming up. Um, we don't know when and how exactly. It is um, noteworthy uh, to say that although the, 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 the general concept of a ground maneuver has been pretty much established and is very you know anticipated by, by everyone, some questions like what would be the magnitude of this maneuver, what would be the goals, when would it stop, you know, what would be the exit point, these are still open questions that, that, that are being debated. And I think this is, is connected in a way to um, President Biden's visit here um, today, you know, questions like, is Israel going to reconquer the, the Gaza Strip, which is something that um, the, the, the U.S. is said to be very opposed to, and, and questions of that sort are still open and are still, you know, being answered and, and will be answered over the, the next few days and, and weeks, maybe even months, I assume. Galit, when do you expect um, a ground invasion to actually commence? Uh, is it fair to say probably not while the U.S. president is on the ground in Israel? 
Yeah, yeah that, that is safe, safe to say that. Um, however, um, President Biden is due to um, leave here very, very soon. This is um, a very important, uh, and like I think you both uh, mentioned, the historical visit of a, of a U.S. president um, visiting Israel in wartime. This has never happened before, and and yet he's about to to leave Israel um, sometime very soon. Um, I think he's done with all his meetings here and and all and all the briefings. So um, we are um, getting some some talk and reports about other leaders um, coming to Israel. Um, I don't think this has been um, totally confirmed yet, but um, talk of um, British um, Prime Minister um, Rishi Sunak that is all, that is also said to be on his way here. Maybe um, French President Emmanuel Macron also on his way here. So so basically, um, until yep. all leaders have, have left um, Israel, a ground invasion is not expected, no. Okay. Galit, thank you so much uh, once again for sharing some time with us. Galit Altstein, we really appreciate your reporting. She's the Israel economy and government reporter with Bloomberg News, joining us live from Tel Aviv. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Morgan Stanley out with some numbers, as John was just reporting, stock down about 6%, uh, just the latest on long line uh, over the last several days of uh, the big uh, commercial banks, the big investment banks reporting numbers. And we want to talk banks. One of our go-to voices is Chris Whalen. He's the chairman of Whalen Global Advisors. Chris, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. Morgan Stanley doesn't have the big commercial bank that benefits from net interest income. But boy, we've seen some of the big commercial banks like JP Morgan, like Citi, really racking up the net interest income. What are some of the takeaways you've had over the last several days from some of these big banks? Well, that's the narrative, Matthew, but I would say if you look at the numbers, you would have to say that net interest income is flat for the industry. Um, you know, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, the other brokerage firms, in other words, they have a broker dealer, it's their biggest business, have to pay market rates. So they've seen their cost of funds rise much faster than the commercial banks. On the other hand, they don't have a mark-to-market problem because they tend to keep their assets very short. So you'll notice that their reported, uh, you know, adjusted uh, accumulated other comprehensive income is much much lower than the big banks. So they don't hold assets; they trade assets, and that's the, the big difference. But cost of funds is their it's probably their biggest pain point. Low volumes is the second pain point at this point. You know, I look at. I always look, Chris, at um, these banks and any companies really versus peers on a five-year basis, just because, um, it, it, just because the Bloomberg defaults to that, and I've been doing it for twenty-five <laughs> years. But Morgan Stanley is still the big winner among the big Wall Street banks. I mean, with total return, yes. uh, they're up almost ninety percent compared to Goldman Sachs is in second place, about fifty percent, and everybody else uh, below it. So um, this bank is still. I would say the cream of the crop on Wall Street. Would you agree? Yes. In the U.S., Morgan Stanley is clearly the winner. Uh, Mr. Gorman realized that he had to pay for a lot of businesses that at the time looked expensive. But when you look back today, you could say he made a good trade. There's no other assets to buy. There's no more significant asset managers that a Goldman or any other bank could really buy. You could buy Schwab, but it's too expensive at three and a half times book. It may go lower. But my point is, is that in the U.S., Morgan Stanley's clearly 
the most diversified business with three legs of the stool, asset management, bank, investment bank, right? And then in Europe, it's UBS. So one of the questions I have, Chris, is you mentioned just UBS, and I used to work at Credit Suisse, so I have a you know, a little bit of an interest uh-huh. there. <laughs> yeah. But the question uh, is, can the European banks, and we'll hear their earnings next week, will any of the big European banks, can they ever consider themselves global players? Or if they just ceded that business to the JP Morgans, the Goldmans, the Morgan Stanleys? It's hard for them because in Europe, you don't have a middle market business. Look at Deutsche Bank. They don't have that core business that comes with deposits that really underpins the U.S. banks. So they try and be global banks. They do private banking, they do investment banking, but there's no core. Now, Credit Suisse was a little different, as you know, because they had a big U.S. mortgage business, and UBS is discovering that they can't sell it, by the way. <laughs> uh, so that's fascinating. They, they own the rump of the private label mortgage business from the 2008 crisis. They have the biggest servicer. It's only about $100 billion in AUM, but still, they can't sell it. I mean, even Apollo would buy it, so that tells you something. Um, and, you know, uh, UBS is clearly the win. Santander is the biggest retail bank, but I would not put them in the same category as UPS. Bringing it back to the U.S., we had in March, you know, something almost broke, or maybe it broke and then the Fed was quick to, to, to fix it um, in terms of banks with hold-to-maturity portfolios. Yesterday, we had Bank America reporting, kind of downplaying their hold-to-maturity portfolio, but all of the yeah. big banks are stuck with uh, treasuries, you know, that are underwater, basically. How does that shake out, you think, especially if the Fed continues raising rates or if the market, if the bond uh, vigilantes continue raising rates? Basically, if you use Bank America as an example, they have typically kept a lot of their loan production. And that's always been there ever since the crisis. They got out of correspondent lending, but they have a big branch network. So they write a lot of mortgages and they would keep them. I have a three. I have friends who have two and a half from Bank America. So my point is, is that they could have sold those loans for 104 when they were first created, right? But they kept them. So now it's a drag on earnings because as their cost of funds goes up, the twos and the two and a halfs and the threes aren't going anywhere because they're not going to prepay, Matthew. You know what I mean? There's a wonderful chart on Bloomberg that shows the duration index for Ginny Mae uh, Securities, and it shows the Powell panic in 2019 when they started pushing durations down from you know, five down to two in one year, which we would have thought was impossible, by the way. And then during COVID, they pushed the duration further down to one for the entire Ginnymet complex. Think about that. Yep. And now, of course, it's gone back up, but that's why Silicon Valley Bank failed. Right, exactly. Very simply. <laughs> All right, Chris, uh, always good to check in with you, get your thoughts on the global banking space. A lot of uh, big banks reporting the numbers. We want to stay ahead of that. Chris Whalen, he's a chairman. Whalen, Global uh, Advisors. Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options markets across all major asset classes. Visit your online broker and get started. See what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash podcast. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service. 
Johann Schmiegel, you've got the world's highest IQ. Yes, 247. Wow. Did you know that thanks to Salesforce with Einstein AI, everyone's smarter? Now everyone's an Einstein, just like you. But I'm the smartest. Not anymore. With connected data and trusted AI, everyone can give customers experiences they've only dreamed of. Oh, look, here's a few Einsteins now. Hey, hi. Hola, amigo. Everyone's an Einstein? It's okay, Johan. Let it happen. The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Matt Miller, Paul Sweeney, live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, some pending potential M&A. Uh, in the hotel business, Wyndham Hotels called Choice Hotels International's takeover offer, quote, underwhelming, rejecting a proposal that would create a budget hotel behemoth. Choice is offering to pay $90 a share in cash and stock and a deal valued at $9.8 billion, including the assumption of debt. That's according to a statement Tuesday. The deal price is 30% more than Wyndham's closing stock price on Monday. Joining us today is Patrick Pacious, CEO of Choice Hotels. He's also a former U.S. Navy officer, so of course we thank him for his service. But in my opinion, the highlight of his resume is that he graduated from Duke University, Matt, so he gets a special pat on the back. Patrick, thanks for joining us here. Talk to us about the status of your pending acquisition offer for Wyndham. Where does it stand right now? Be with you, Matt, as well. Uh, we have essentially gotten to a point after six months of dialogue um, where it made sense for us to bring our proposal public um, because we believe it's very shareholder friendly. We think it's very good for our franchisees and for their franchisees, and it's pro competitive. So we put our offer on the table. Um, they essentially decided about three weeks ago to disengage. Um, and it made sense for us to bring this uh, offer to the shareholders and the franchisees. And it gives us an opportunity now to talk about it. If you look at their shareholders, we're really offering them to pay them a multiple, an earnings multiple that they've never really achieved on their own, except for a very short spike during the COVID period. We normally trade about two to three times uh, higher from a uh, multiple perspective. So their shareholders are getting a significant premium and they're getting to participate in a really significant opportunity on the upside for the combined company. So that's that's where we are today right now, Paul and, and Matt. We really are hoping the other side, the Wyndham uh, uh, team will engage with us again to really drive what I think would be a truly value creating opportunity for everybody. What's the uh, business that you're most interested in, in, in terms of hotels? Is it you know, economy, one night stays, is it extended stays? Is it, you know, what do you need to add um, to, to your portfolio to bring your business to where you want it? Well, I think if you look at the hotel space and the travel sector in general, there are a lot of large players now that weren't here five, 10 years ago. So you have Airbnb, you have VRBO, you have a lot of what I call alternative lodging options. And so to compete in that environment, um, you need to be able to provide your franchisees with the tools they need to be successful. And what we're seeing for our franchisees and for theirs as well is all their costs are going up. Labor costs are going up, uh, uh, insurance costs, property taxes, their debt service. So what we're able to provide, and we've shown this, is the ability to lower their operating costs. The number one thing I hear from our franchisees is bring us more direct bookings, lower our operating costs, 
and make your loyalty program that much bigger. So by doing a transaction like this, and we've shown this with our recent acquisition of Radisson, we have a real opportunity to improve the unit economics for each one of our franchisees. And that's why they're excited about an opportunity like this. So from the from the perspective of getting some type of deal done with Wyndham, what are the real sticking points from the other side? Is it simply price or what else is the, 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 the headwind? Well, it's interesting. One of their uh, arguments is that they believe our stock is overvalued. And what's interesting is we decided to do something very unusual. On the 5th of September, we offered to let them come in and look at our books. And they said, great, they sent us over a list, we sent it back, and then they never availed themselves of that opportunity. So we really wanted to be able to show them the value of our business and, and have them understand that by being part of the combined company, their shareholders would win, and they never really availed themselves of that opportunity. The second thing they bring up is execution risk, and that's become a bit of a go-to for companies that don't want to do deals. Um, it's not based in the facts. We've been well advised around what it will take to get a deal like this done. And we think there's a real opportunity for the two of us to work together to make that happen. And when you hear from our franchisees about how excited they are about our ability to improve their operating performance, it's really a win-win for everybody. Is there a path to restarting these discussions here? What are next steps uh, for you or have you really kind of put this on the back burner? No, absolutely. We're, we're, we're pretty determined to, uh, to re-engage. We really want um, to make that happen. We think it's the right thing for everybody, for the franchisees, the shareholders, the associates, and, and the guests that are out there. It really provides a nice uh, premier hotel platform for that value-driven leisure and business traveler that doesn't exist today. And we think together we can create something pretty exciting. So we're simply asking the other side to re-engage with us and, and let's move the ball forward. Let's get back to the uh, price earnings comparison you were making earlier. I've pulled up a chart just to look at um, what investors are willing to pay um, for Wyndham Hotels earnings. Right now, um, for current earnings, it's 21.8, so call it 22. And it's been around that level, taking out the, the COVID era spike for the last 10 years. If you look at uh, how much investors are willing to pay for forward earnings. Um, we're looking at 17.2 right now, and it's pretty much hovered between, you know, uh, uh, 16 and 20 for the past few years. And before that, it was much, much lower. What are you talking about offering for, for earnings, either now or estimated earnings? So what we're really looking at in this transaction is taking their business and applying our multiple, which as I mentioned before, is two to three times bigger than theirs. There's a reason for that. The reason is we have a higher growth story than they have had traditionally. And we think by combining the two companies, there's an ability to unlock value in their brands that as a standalone company, they're unable to do today. So we really feel like having that larger scale allows us to really open up value, create more brand equity and drive the growth in their brands in addition to our own. And it really accelerates the growth for everybody. Patrick, instead of M&A, could, could you see a partnership similar to MGM Marriott? So that would be something like the com combination of the loyalty programs. Uh, there's always uh, uh, relationships. We have them today with certain travel partners where we have our rewards program that links up. Um, that provides an opportunity for companies to work together. I think on a transaction like this, it really makes sense to do the full embrace and, and really bring the full value that we can bring to their shareholders 
and our own, as well as the both of our franchisee bases. So something like that is uh, a little bit of a small cheese when you can have the, the big opportunity. I think it makes the most sense to go forward with a full embrace and combine the two businesses. All right, Patrick, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, Patrick Pacious, he's the CEO of Choice Hotels. Uh, that symbol is C, uh, ticker CHH to put into your Bloomberg terminal and get a sense there. And again, the uh, they would like to pursue this um, acquisition of Wyndham, uh, but Wyndham has officially rejected uh, the acquisition. Again, a $9.8 billion takeover bid there. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Nathan Dean joins us, senior policy analyst, focusing on the U.S. government for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's down in Washington, D.C. Nathan, talk to us about like the practical impact. If we have a shutdown next month of the U.S. government, that means stuff doesn't just get done. Nobody gets paid. What's the feeling? But it doesn't save us money, right, Nathan? Because I, I, I sit around in my car listening to Bloomberg Radio and get so angry about um, the deficits and the debt picture. And I think, man, might as well just shut down the government. But that actually is not less expensive, is it? Yeah, exactly. You know, during the, the 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 best base case scenario is, or obviously the base case to go off of is what happened under the Trump administration. We had a 35 day shutdown. You know, you lost about 11 billion dollars in economic activity. The country, when it, or sorry, when the government, when it reopened, was able to regenerate around eight billion of that. So, but we were still down three billion. And see, that's the problem is, is that when they say let's just shut the government down, everybody will save money. No, no, the government still operates. It's the portions of the government that are considered non-essential that shut down. But ultimately, those payers or those workers are always paid back when the government reopens. You know, so markets tend to think of shutdowns almost like a, you know, when it actually happens, we're not quite sure what's happening. There's some angst for a couple of days, but then once they realize that the economic impact is just, you know, it's bad, but not like groundbreaking, then markets tend to actually move up towards the end of a shutdown or just act normally. Nathan, we don't have a speaker. We've got this uh, of the House. Uh, we've got this looming uh, government shutdown. What's the feeling when you talk to your contacts down there in D.C. about how this is all going to play out? Because, I mean, the feeling here from New York is, it's, it, why should we expect anything other than a shutdown? So it, to answer your question, nobody knows. Okay. I mean, there's this general consensus that, uh, you know, this idea that Jim Jordan's going to lose the second ballot, which should start in about five minutes. Uh, you know, there's this idea of you know, Patrick McHenry, the speaker pro temp, getting additional power so that he can, over the next 30 days, deal with Ukraine and Israel aid and so forth like that. Nobody knows how that's going to play out. But what we do know is... Think about the catalysts that are coming up. So you've got Israel-Ukraine aid. You know, general support for that. Obviously, Ukraine is a little bit different, but general support. You've got this shutdown on November 17th. If Jim Jordan becomes the speaker, well, if he proceeds with his plan that Bloomberg News was reporting about that he wants to kick the can down to April, shutdown threat is low. If they can't get the Republicans united around that, the shutdown threat is really high. But when it comes to the shutdown, the real concern for markets is that if you go into, let's say, past 35 days, and this goes into 2024, not only do you have to worry about the economic uh, impact, you also have to worry about things like SNAP benefits running out. And if you have exposure to grocery stores come 2024, that may be something to keep in the back of your mind. But ultimately, these things always end up being solved by bipartisan deals. It's just the political roadblocks and the political games that you have to run through to get to that bipartisan deal. Um, 
So the uh, aid to Ukraine and, and Israel are front and center. What about things like uh, safe banking and <laughs> salt tax deductions? Has so, everyone yeah, lost sight of those things? You know, I'm great you, you asked that question because every day we don't have a speaker. Odds of bills like safe banking or crypto or data privacy amongst children, I'm sorry, data privacy for children uh, at technology companies, every day that we don't have a speaker, the odds of those bills passing decreases. Because what happens is you're not spending time actually working on those bills and nobody in Congress is paying attention to them at the moment. You need folks that aren't you know, accustomed to these issues just start debates, start discussion, having hearings, votes, et cetera. And so if this speaker issue or debate dysfunction, whatever you call it, continues to bleed through the rest of the fall, then we get into 2024 and something like safe banking, well, you know, if people aren't paying attention to it, pretty soon they're going to pay attention to the elections and they're not even going to care about these bills. So, you know, we have a lot of bills that we are tracking out there that are like tied to a specific portfolio or industry. And every single day that this dysfunction continues, the odds of those bills passing decreases just a little bit. But as we approach the election, I would guess um, SALT deductions are going to come into sharper focus because it's started to become um, an issue. You know, the Republicans raised taxes on us, and that doesn't look good when they're running for re-election. So now I'm starting to hear from both sides support for raising the cap. But support from both sides, most likely in New Jersey or New York or California. If you talk <laughs> to somebody, <laughs> you know, um, which don't get me wrong, for those of you in New York and New Jersey, I really hope this works out for you. But, um, you know, really, though, the more important thing to say here is that, you know, Democrats have been using salt as a way to attack Republicans in ads. Bloomberg News had an article about that earlier this week. And, you know, you, the challenge for the salt deduction advocates, the ones who don't want to get rid of the cap, is how do you pay for it? Because it's an easy thing for somebody from the state of like Tennessee or uh, Colorado, for example, to say, you know, look, if you, we give this to the folks of New York and New Jersey, you know, how do we pay for it? And that's just a big challenge. Uh, you know, certainly I think the salt deduction caucus, you know, their, their, their mantra is we just want a nibble of salt, a piece of salt. We don't want it back. They're certainly going to try hard. And I think there's some, you know, real chances that they can get there. But again, they're really not going to negotiate this until after the election. This is the year, 2024 is the year for bringing out these ideas, trying to get people comfortable positions and so forth like that. And then after the elections, you have a real strong, you know, uh, impetus to do something then. So, Nathan, we're just kind of having the big, big banks report their earnings. And we've heard a lot of the, you know, the executives, you know, talk about some of the higher capital requirements, debt requirements and things like that. That kind of stuff, is that still coming from Washington? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Brian Moynihan from uh, Bank of America just did an interview with David Weston yesterday about this. And he talked about what is known as the Basel III endgame. Now, this is a proposal that's out there, and this would raise for capital requirements for the biggest banks, so the JP Morgans, those so forth, by about 19%. Uh, you know, there is some angst, I would think, uh, or at least I would say not just amongst uh, you know, Republicans, but also some moderate Democrats about what's the impact here on mortgage lending? What's the impact on the economy? Because, you know, in this times of economic uncertainty, is this really the time that we want to drive uh, capital requirements higher? You know, Mr. Moynihan even said, look, if you're going to raise capital on us that 19%, we could probably deal with it. 
but a lot of lending is going to go to non-bank financials like hedge funds and so forth like that. That's counterintuitive to what regulators want to do. So we've seen the Federal Reserve somewhat on the defensive about this. Uh, I think they're still going to move forward and try and finalize this year. It's a three-year implementation after that. The comment deadline is November 30th, so we won't see any action from the Fed until after that. Uh, finalization is probably going to be about a year from now, but uh, certainly tweaks could be on the horizon here because I think the Fed is getting a little bit different response, uh, not only just from the industry, but some of those moderate lawmakers as they, they had originally intended. Well, Nathan, that's, that's kind of already happened. The whole growth of the private credit business, which is just booming, is a, you know, many folks feel like is a direct result of the regulations instituted after the great financial crisis. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Financial Stability Oversight Council, which is a, a, a super body regulatory body, almost called the super friends led by Treasury. Um, you know, they've been looking at this for a while now, but they really haven't done anything. I mean, there's been lots of studies and guidances and so forth like that. There's some discussion about, re, you know, changing some Trump era guidance to make it easier to declare one of these non-banks, what is known systemically as important. If they were to pick on BlackRock, for example, they could hit BlackRock with capital requirements. But in the same breath, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has always said, I don't want to target BlackRock, but maybe the activities of BlackRock. And again, I'm just picking on BlackRock here. So, you know, I think this signals to us is that the FSOC really doesn't know what it wants to do. And oh, by the way, we have an election in 2024. So if the Republicans win the White House, all this work essentially stops. So when it comes to the regulation of the non-bank sector, you know, 2024 is going to be another year of studying and analyzing and so forth like that. If Biden wins re-election, then you're going to start seeing a little bit more of uh, maybe if you're BlackRock or if you're Vanguard or if you're just, you know, what is considered systemically important, yep. then you're going to take, get a look at and see maybe there's a different regulatory regime for you. All right. Good stuff. Nathan Dean, I don't know why Nathan just doesn't go across the street, go to Capitol Hill and just tell these people, get something done. I mean, he's smart. He's reasonable. I'd, I'd listen to him. I'm, Nathan Dean, I mean, senior policy analyst, does the U.S. government stuff. I don't know. Bloomberg Intelligence, smart guy, reasonable. Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options markets across all major asset classes. Visit your online broker and get started. See what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash podcast. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary, because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Amit Kumar joins us. He's the CIO of Param Hansa Values to talk about these markets. Amit, thanks so much for taking the time. Just first of all, just tell us how you guys at your shop, how do you guys approach the market? Uh, we tend to have, thank you first of all for having me on the show. Uh, we tend to have a very long-term view uh, in terms of uh, the stocks that we look at. We are very equity focused. 
Um, so typically, you know, five to seven year view um, on individual stocks and their growth outlook, et cetera. And obviously, I mean, we go through multiple cycles during that period, given the cycles are getting shorter and shorter. All right. So I, I, there's so many cross currents for investors to kind of deal with these days, whether it's earnings that we're just dealing with earnings, whether it's the geopolitical issues uh, across the globe, uh, rising interest rates. Kind of what's your call right here? What do you how are you guys how have you positioned your portfolio? So, um, look, when we when we look out next five years, there's a few factors to look at. I mean, what is the peak interest rate? Uh, where is it going to be? And uh, that's partly a factor in the cost of capital and valuations that we look at the stocks. And uh, let's say if we are higher for longer, which is one of the uh, more sort of reasonably accepted uh, case, um, are we in stocks that can justify um, that kind of a cost of capital and can compensate with uh, cash flow and other things? Uh, those those things we look at, geopolitical issues, of course, I mean, are, have been a factor and there's always... I cannot, uh, I've been a fund manager for seven years at Threadneedle. I've never remembered a time where there was not much uncertainty, whether it was uh, U.S. presidential elections or, um, you know, U.S. banks um, facing problems, um, one after the other. And this time is no different. Uh, but I guess what a five-year outlook allows us to do is look past some of the short-term noise and really focus on solid business models and companies that um, have a true um, economic advantage and a business model advantage over the others. So in, in that context, if we look out five to 10 years, obviously cloud and internet is gonna be, you know, a very lasting theme. Uh, I mean, the next trillion dollars of growth is probably gonna come from there and software and semiconductors are kind of not in bold. So we are obviously very focused on both those segments and then also on uh, biotechnology and uh, life sciences slash devices. Um, where basically we will be solving lots of healthcare problems with the help of uh, compute, actually, uh, because a lot of the biotech and device research has been augmented with the application of uh, of um, you know advances in uh, AI cloud. Et That's where I wanted to go. That's where I wanted to go. It seems like you know earlier this year AI was just all the rage. Now maybe the focus is on Ozempic or something like that. I don't know. But uh, how do you guys? think about AI and, and how does that kind of influence where you go? How do you, how, how do you play AI? Uh, so look, AI as a theme for the next five to 10 years is gonna be around and simply because of the ease of access. Um, I mean, if you wanted to, uh, I mean, if you uh, flash back to 2000, if you wanna do a new startup where you buy a bunch of computers and servers and, you know, and they become obsolete every year, uh, fast forward now, if you want to start a startup, I mean, you just rent something on Amazon Cloud or Microsoft uh, Azure or Google, right? And uh, it's no different for AI as well. I mean, you can basically run your AI workloads on each of these uh, cloud servers. So the most you know, obvious and the first order beneficiaries are obviously the uh, hardware suppliers who uh, supply the semiconductor chips um, to these and then and the, the service providers themselves. So the hyperscalers and the, and the cloud service providers, those are the obvious ones. But really, uh, what we're looking at is what problems are these AI use cases solving? And obviously, you know, GPT has been one of the most uh, obvious ones uh, we've heard about in the last one year, especially. But there's a lot of lateral and vertical applications for AI. Uh, like I said, in healthcare, a um, lot of the wet lab data, which is be the primary focus of uh, biotech research. 
uh, I mean, a lot of, a lot of the data can serve towards um, sort of, um, you know, uh, AI driven models, uh, which can tell you uh, the impact of a receptor or, or, or a drug uh, on its uh, target. Amit, so, you, uh, you have a truly um, international resume. You started your studies at the Indian Institute of Technology. You've worked at Swiss Re in Columbia Threadneedle. You've been a visiting lecturer at the London Business School, and I hear you're in Florida right now. Are there yeah. regions that you like uh, better than the other? Is the U.S. Um, you know, still the leader when it comes to the kind of investing you're interested in? Or are there other uh, places where you find good value? Well, for me, the U.S., obviously, I love a few of the other international areas as well. But for me, the U.S. is kind of paramount because, I mean, look, uh, when it comes to technology and biotechnology, uh, there is no close second to the United States. And um, the kind of talent, talent and resource and uh, university research still we have. I mean, as part of our philanthropy, we are also involved with a lot of the universities in early stage research. But when it comes to anything from cancer to uh, um, to uh, semiconductors to AI, uh, all the leading companies are based here in the US and all the breakthrough research is happening here. So at least I, I know the, right. the you know, is other countries where you can claim the next um, century is theirs, but I don't see the next decade going anywhere from the <laughs> United States. All right, Amit, thanks so much uh, for taking the time. We really appreciate uh, getting some of your thoughts. Amit Kumar, he's the CIO. Uh, the firm is called Param. Hansa Values uh, LLC. So giving us lots on the markets, focusing on technology and biotechnology. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. President Biden, we saw him earlier today, we heard him speak. Uh, he was in Israel, I believe he's uh, wheels up on the way back. Uh, but obviously the big issue just really during this visit was the hospital explosion uh, in Gaza and how that is going to impact the whole situation. Bobby Ghosh joins us. He's the editor with Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, we appreciate getting a few more minutes of his time. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Bobby, the explosion we saw at the hospital doesn't make things any easier over there does it how do you, how do you think about that no it made things a lot harder for president biden he was meant in addition to traveling to israel he was meant to have a summit with the president of egypt and the king of uh, jordan two very very important neighbors of israel and people who would have to be the part a part of the solution here and they basically canceled on him canceled on the president of the united states uh which i can't off the top of my head think of another occasion when that's happened because they joined a rush to immediately blame the explosion on Israel. The assumption was that it was an Israeli missile that blew up that hospital. Now, overnight, we've had other people look into this. Um, the 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 U.S. the Pentagon. It was a huge uh, explosion. It was a huge explosion. I mean, you think of Hamas missiles or whatever other splinter group this was as kind of small and not quite powerful enough to destroy an entire hospital. It depends on what they fall on, and it depends uh, what they're carrying when they fall. So a missile is loaded with fuel. If it falls uh, before that fuel has been expended, then that fuel will, will create a big fireball. And if it lands on something else that is flammable, like a cache of weapons, that will also create a fireball. 
I am not suggesting for a moment I know the answer to the question whose uh, rocket made the damage, but there is now room for doubt. And the president, upon arrival in uh, Israel, one of the first things he said was that Israel didn't do it. And he's he was asked, and he says he's basing that on the intelligence he was shown from the Defense Department. So American intelligence has looked at this. Israeli intelligence has looked at this. They are claiming, and at this point it's only a claim, they're claiming that a missile fired by Islamic Jihad, which is, if you like, Hamas's uh, younger cousin, um, <laughs> that a, a missile, that a rocket that they uh, have set off in the direction of Israel misfired and landed on this hospital and created this fireball. I want to ask about, so he, uh, he gave a really impassioned speech this morning, and I want to get your take on that because I thought it was incredibly well done, um, certainly well-written and well-delivered uh, speech, and he made some important points. On the other hand, he's made some missteps over the past few days. He, he said that, or implied, that there were confirmed pictures of beheaded babies, right? Yes which led to a real concern, a fair concern, I think, about misinformation coming from the mm -hmm. Israeli side. Now he says that the other team did it, which is, I think, a really poor choice of phrase, yes. right? As if these are two teams. Um, and, and considering what he said earlier, it seems like he's willing to take Israeli propaganda and just continue to spread it. What do you think about that? Well, he does have a history of <laughs> shooting from the hip, and then the White House later has to sort of take back what he said. Um, we're seeing that happen again in real time. Uh, I agree with you. The, word, the choice of the word, you know, the other team, uh, seems terribly inappropriate. I prefer my folksy, folksy rhetoric from Dan Rather than mm -hmm. the President of the United States. Um, but in in the instance about the uh, about the, the the explosion in the in the hospital, he's not. He doesn't seem to be shooting off the hip there. He's saying that there's a specific intelligence shown to him, not by the Israelis, right. by, by the Pentagon, the Pentagon, by the Defense Department, which makes this slightly different. The 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 sort of off the cuff statement he made about the babies, that that was a very very ill conceived thing for a man, who let's not forget prides himself at being uh, a world statesman, prides himself at having been in the weeds of foreign policy for four decades. Well, he was talking he today about standing with Golda Meir, you know, exactly which I right. thought was pretty impressive. Uh, Correct. Call back to 1973. What did you think about the speech? I liked the speech. I thought it was, it was, a, it was a, as you say, passionate, uh, uh, well-written and well-delivered. But I don't think anybody in Israel was in any doubt that the president of the United States was behind them. I mean, we can discuss whether it's worth him saying it one more time and whether it carries more impact if he says it in Jer Jerusalem rather than says it from the Oval Office. Perhaps it does. But there's another constituency, another audience in the Middle East that he needed to speak to, an audience that is sort of enraged uh, at the moment that for whom that speech would have gone down like a lead balloon. Um, again, I say this, the, the, the king of... Uh, Jordan, the president of uh, Egypt, recipients of enormous amounts of American aid, two of the most important non-NATO allies of the United States, blowing off the president of the United States. That's very, very bad news. So uh, how, how should we take this? How should, how should the president take it? I mean, it, it, I agree. It sounds, it, I, I don't, can't remember that ever happening. So what does that really tell you? 
Well, that tells that tells me that you know that that the 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 Arab street, the mythical, uh, sometimes mythical Arab street, in this case real, is is mad as hell, and even their rulers, not necessarily elected rulers, um, are frightened of going against the street. Um, no matter how much evidence the United States and Israel put forward, I can't imagine the King of uh, Jordan or the President of. Uh, Egypt standing before cameras and saying, "Oh, we got it wrong. Sorry, folks. Uh, it was it was our own. It was it was Hamas or Islamic Jihad that did this. It was not the Israelis. I, I I don't think that they will run against the opinion of their people, even when that opinion is wrong. Now, what Biden has done since that opening, those opening remarks, he's done the right things. He's he's sort of lent into this idea of forcing the Israelis to allow humanitarian aid to get to Gaza." That was very, very important. Now, that would have been much more striking if he had made that announcement with the, uh, with King uh, Abdullah and President Sisi standing on either side of him. Okay, that photo op didn't happen. But if he can continue to hold the Israelis to this, allowing humanitarian supplies, making a greater effort not to hit uh, civilian targets, maybe holding back on that ground offensive that they've been preparing for, then his trip will not have been entirely wasted. I wonder, have, what, I'm sorry, I, wa I wonder what the, you know, when I see these, uh, I can understand the, the tragedies um, of, of any helpless woman or children or, or men for that matter, you know, um, being killed, civilians being killed in acts of terrorism or acts of war. But I, I, I have to question when I see um, the protests against Israel in the Middle East and here on college campuses, um, whether or not these people saw what Hamas did last Saturday. I mean, the president repeated it, and it shouldn't be forgotten. They came out and killed, in very brutal ways, kids dancing at a peace festival. Yeah. You know, went into a kibbutz. They killed parents in front of their children. They killed children in front of parents. They, there are reports of rape, and as the president did say, beheadings and, uh, you know, burning people alive. Did, did, did no one see this? No, they did. And, and, and How I could actually you justify wrote, protesting I, against, you know, the retaliation for that act? I wrote a piece about this uh, on Monday, I wonder, I think, uh, last Monday. Uh, sorry, Monday, not this right, Monday, right. last Monday. Uh, making this exact point that, that Hamas, in those early days after uh, that, that terrorist attack, l had lost the international war of images. That, you know, that nobody could, could any longer pretend that Hamas was a... Uh, legitimate uh, resistance group, that this was terrorism, pure and simple, and the people who did this were pu terrorists, pure and simple. And I have to say that for a New York Minute, it really did shock the Arab world. And and there was, it's, it's hard to think back even to a few days back because so much has happened since then, but there was a moment of pause, a sharp intake of breath. If you've covered the Middle East as long as I, I have, it was a really, really important moment. And then it passed. This is the nature of war. It's the nature of war of images, just as much as is the nature Especially of real war. Especially in a 24-hour news cycle. And in, the, in, in a fog. Uh, the, this sort of thing will happen over and over again. There'll be a fresh image. That'll grab attention. Then the, that attention will sort of go away. Another fresh image, and that'll grab attention. Right now, all the images are coming out of Gaza, and that's where it, attention and anger is focused. And the next ones uh, presumably will happen when we do in fact get a uh, Israeli movement, whether they attack, go and send in troops, that's when 
we'll get those images as well. Bobby, thank you so much once again for joining us. Bobby Ghosh, he's the editor of Bloomberg Opinion. Just we really appreciate getting some of his time here. Uh, again, his columns, I highly recommend them. Uh, get set an alert like I did on the Bloomberg terminal, and then you won't miss them. Uh, you go to Bloomberg.com slash opinion, and that's where you get uh, the good work of our opinion columnists for Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, just outstanding work across the board. I can't say enough about our Bloomberg Opinion uh, folks there. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Well, we started the morning with uh, President Biden uh, in uh, Israel and uh, you know making his uh, comments there after meetings uh, with Israeli leaders and once again talking about uh, the solidarity between the U.S. Uh, and Israel. Of course, the backdrop of that uh, was news of that terrible explosion at the hospital in Gaza. Uh, and we want to kind of bring all this together, and we do that with Mick Mulroy, uh, co-founder of the Lobo Institute. He's a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute, former assistant secretary of defense for the Middle East at the U.S. Department of Defense. He was in uh, paramilitary operations officer at CIA, former U.S. Marine. So uh, just tremendous experience in that part of the world. Mick, let's start with that explosion at the hospital. There's, uh, I guess, a little bit confusion as to who is responsible. Based upon the information you've seen, based upon the people you've talked to, how do you think that played out and, and who is who kind of instigated that? So, yes, there certainly was confusion. Hamas came out uh, quickly and blamed it on the IDF. The IDF, I think, rightfully spent time to look at it and determine, at least from their perspective, what happened. And they indicated uh, after that that it looked like it was a PIG, so the Palestinian Islamic Jihad uh, rocket that malfunctioned and, and hit the side of the building. And now the United States has come out, and, and what I expected, because they have so many intelligence assets in the region, is that they could do that and look at that for their own perspective and come up with their own conclusions. And they concluded that it was, in fact, a, uh, not the IDF, but a, a, an errant rocket uh, that either was lined up incorrectly and hit the side of the hospital or the, the engine on it uh, failed and it hit the hospital with a lot of its rocket fuel still in it, which is what caused the uh, a lot of the casualties, unfortunately. Yeah. OK. Um, is there do you, do you believe we will ever really know definitively who fired that rocket? So I believe with the information that would be available to the U.S. intelligence community, uh, both imagery, uh, signals, intelligence about talking on the ground prior to the launch, I, I think we have a pretty good idea. Okay. Obviously, I can't see that information, but I think if the U.S. came to that conclusion, they have a pretty definitive idea that that was, in fact, a PIG, uh, PIJ, excuse me, uh, rocket. All right. So um, I guess another uh, big part of this story of, or of the president's trip to Israel is that uh, the part of his trip where he was going to meet with Arab leaders in Jordan canceled really kind of at the, at the last moment. And how significant is that uh, from your perspective, Mick, in terms of the president's ability to try to promote some type of peaceful movement forward? So it's very unfortunate, especially since it turns out it wasn't a strike uh, by the IDF, not that a lot of these uh, leaders would acknowledge that, even though we determined it, because it's going to take dialogue. We're in the middle of trying to uh, establish a humanitarian corridor, humanitarian pause to get food into Gaza. That requires dialogues at a very high level. And of course, any potential 
in the future for a cessation of hostilities is going to require dialogue. So it's certainly not helpful. We do have ongoing diplomatic missions in all these countries, so the dialogue can continue. But having the president in the region, uh, I think this, this was a big missed opportunity. Yep. Um, so we still have the images and, and the news reports, uh, Mick, of uh, the of Israel mounting its resources, its its material and resources on the border. So I guess the question for a lot of folks is just when will they go into the Gaza Strip? How will they go into the Gaza Strip? Maybe what's their strategy at this stage? What do you think will happen? So it is unclear what what is uh, taking this time. Why why the pause, so to speak? Because they've been prepared and prepped in an assembly area, ready to go in for uh, quite some time. It may be that they're really trying to gather more intelligence. It may be that there is hostage negotiations, which you've seen reported today, in which they're trying to get them out prior to. Uh, and of course, they got they have to realize they being the IDF that Hamas wants them to do this. It was planned probably at the same time they uh, planned the attack into Israel. So they are assessing all of that. Uh, when they go in, if they go in, I think they're going to go in very hard from the north, uh, from the Erez uh, uh, border checkpoints, because that is where you can get and funnel all of these armored personnel carriers and tanks uh, into that area. And then when they hit Gaza City, it's going to be extraordinarily violent mm. and and destructive and that's why it's a good thing that a lot of civilians have already left the northern part of gaza and i i guess just as well um with president biden in israel today there's reports that perhaps um leaders from other western countries uh the uk uh, mr sunak and uh macron of france they're considering going to israel as well i presumably if you're you know you would not launch a campaign with such folks in country? So I think that's a fair assumption. Uh, it's obviously dangerous enough for these heads of states to go into a conflict area, especially one where rockets and missiles are essentially free firing. Um, but I do think going there and delivering a message that is consistent, you know, probably discussed in advance between the US, UK and France is very helpful and it's very reassuring to Israel. And it does show Iran, for example, that they need to stay out of this. And so I imagine those messages are just being repeated. But I agree with you, it's unlikely, although not impossible, that they could launch this ground invasion during a time when they when one of these heads of states is in uh, Tel Aviv. You know, two aircraft carrier groups, I don't care who you are or where you are, that gets your attention here. Are you surprised that there a second carrier group went into the region there? Somewhat surprised, but I agree. It definitely should get get uh, Iran, Hezbollah, and any other group that wants to join this as attention. Uh, these are two of the most advanced uh, aircraft carriers in the world. Uh, combined, there's about 16 squadrons of fighters and support aircraft. There's, I don't know, four or five destroyers, which all have ship-to-shore artillery. Uh, and then there's cruisers. And there's a, a Marine Expeditionary Unit en route to the area. So this is an incredible amount of both air power, sea power, and potentially even ground power, I think that's very unlikely to be used in this region to set a very strong message of deterrence. Uh, Mick, just about 30 seconds left. Do you have any updated uh, sourcing on what's happening in Ukraine? That Unfortunately, that has, from the Ukrainian perspective, taken kind of a, a back burner here. Yes, it has. So we've seen what looks like the entry of the Attackums, which is a long-range artillery 
uh, weapon that we gave to the Ukrainians, one that was somewhat controversial, but one that also gives them the ability to hit any Russian positions from their front lines now. So any Russian uh, military capacity in Ukraine right now can be hit with these munitions that can be fired out of the HIMARS. So that's the most significant update. The Ukrainians are making slow gains and they are striking in the rear in Crimea. And I think those are both important in in, in, in the controlled areas uh, also. So this is an important uh, step. They do need to get the resupplied and they do need the support to pass in Congress uh, to be able to go forward and really make some gains in this counteroffensive. All right, Mick, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting some of your time. Give us uh, the, uh, the benefit of your great experience uh, in all things geopolitics. Mick Mulroy, he's a co-founder of the Lobo Institute uh, and uh, you know has just have tremendous experience um, in that part of the world and in these types of situations. Look. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to help manage risk. From liability and property insurance to workers' comp, and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Johann Schmiegel, you've got the world's highest IQ. Yes, 247. Wow. Did you know that thanks to Salesforce with Einstein AI, everyone's smarter? Now everyone's an Einstein, just like you. But I'm the smartest. Not anymore. With connected data and trusted AI, everyone can give customers experiences they've only dreamed of. Oh, look, here's a few Einsteins now. Hey, hi. Hola, amigo. Everyone's an Einstein? It's okay, Johan. Let it happen. The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce.